We are going to begin a new conversation that I have called, um, that I've called Iron Age Wisdom. And I think for a lot of us, if we hear Iron Age and Wisdom together, we think, well, that's incongruous. It's unlikely. What, what possible wisdom could we find in the Iron Age? Um, and, um, and if, if we have that thought, if that thought goes through our head, um, I, I was listening to a speaker once and he said, he, he was, he was dismissing, uh, part of the Bible that we're going to read today and he called it Iron Age Barbarism. And I thought to myself, well, that is not, um, the, the, the sound of somebody who is, uh, evaluating a, a culture different from his own. That's somebody who's a chauvinist and a snob. And so, um, so I want to look at the Iron Age, um, uh, uh, Passages uh, in in the in the scriptures, so that we can we can ask we can evaluate for ourselves: Is this wisdom, or is it in fact savagery and barbarism? It's something we're going to have the opportunity to look at for the next several weeks. Um, but if our first thought is, "Well, there's nothing to be found there; that's a waste of our time," you know, that's that is barbarism, that is savagery. Um, I would like to point out that actually it's us who are weird. That, that we're the weird ones. They're not the weird ones. We are. And I'm, I'm speaking technically here. Sociologists use the term weird, um, W-E-I-R-D, to describe uh, uh, societies that are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. That most of the people who've ever lived on the earth, and a lot of people who still live on the earth today, um, are not weird the way we're weird. And so if we're going to be looking for wisdom, if we assume that wisdom is kind of broadly scattered across people, that it's not simply a question of, do you know how to log on to Facebook or something, that wisdom is, is a deeper and, and bigger topic than, than technical know-how, um, then it may be found in non-weird places as well. Uh, <laughs> maybe some of you haven't already forgotten the 2018 earthquake. I remember it pretty clearly. And one of the reasons I remember it is because the power went out in our house. It was out for about six hours. And, you know, the first hour wasn't much of a big deal. But after two and three hours, I started thinking, huh, how long is it going to be out? And by the time we got to six and, and it finally did come back on, um, I was thinking, well, what if it's gone for, for like 12 hours? What if it's gone for a day or two days? And I started thinking, you know, I don't know. I literally don't know what to do in those circumstances. But for a lot of non-weird people um, in the world today, and certainly down through history, um, that's that's just part of reality. That that we don't always get clean drinking water and and uh, an oven and all the things that we like. That there are people who have skills that I don't have. Yes, I can log into Facebook, but you know what do I do after the the, the big one? So um, so uh, we can be um, we can be chauvinistic. We can be snobs because. Uh, we don't have a real appreciation of, of some of the things that matter. They've been kind of abstracted out of our lives, and we just kind of assume that grocery stores and supply chains will continue to exist. And, and I'm not going to romanticize, you know, living in, in a different society or a different way because I like having grocery stores. I like having clean water that I just have to turn the, the tap on. So I like that. But I appreciate that, um, that weird society, our weird society, is delicate. That, that it's the result of a lot of effort and it doesn't, it didn't just spring into place, uh, magically. It, it takes a lot of work to maintain it. But there's more than that that I want to talk about. When, when we talk about, when we talk about weird versus non-weird, when we talk about wise versus unwise, 
there was this smart guy once, and he said, man does not live by bread alone. And there's more to life than simply having clean water and, and grocery stores. It's great to have them, don't, don't get me wrong, but there's more to life than that. A couple of months ago, the American Psychiatric... I know these are too small to see, don't worry about it. Um, but the American Psychiatric Society um, put out a report that is called um, Stress in America, a National Mental Health Crisis. It, and some of the highlights there, and again, I, I appreciate they're too small. Youth mental health is worsening. Even before COVID-19, um, 19% of adults experienced um, uh, different kinds of stress. Um, and we see this in, in the news, right? Uh, the lockdowns coincided with record-breaking numbers of drug um, overdose fatalities, and military suicides have gone up. There's a lot of problems in the world that don't directly connect to whether or not the grocery stores have food in them. That there's a lot of problems in this world. The psychologist Viktor Frankl was um, was uh, uh, a victim of the Holocaust. He spent uh, he spent World War II in a concentration camp, and he survived. And after he got out, he wrote this book, um, "Man's Search for Meaning." And in it, he he recounts his his the the thing that he discovered in the course of that experience. He discovered that the people most likely to survive that experience were people who had a meaning, that, that, that they had a purpose, that they had to get out, they were determined to get out, and they were able to endure things that other people alongside them were not because because they had that purpose driving them on. And it's interesting to me, he wrote the book in 46 or 47, I think, and today or last night on Amazon, it was um, listed at number 168. Think about that. It's nearly 75 years old, and it's still in the top 200 books being sold on Amazon. That's how desperate the world is for something to help them navigate not the grocery store problem, not the clean water problem, but the deeper problem of meaning, purpose, and wisdom. So I do want to look at wisdom, and the reason for that is that I think I think desperate times call for desperate measures. There's a joke about a man who uh, is walking along and he sees somebody else who's kind of poking around underneath a street lamp. And the, the guy is like obviously looking for something and he says, what, what's, what's wrong? What did you lose? And he says, oh, I lost my keys. Can, can you help me look for them? So the two of them, they both poke around under the street light for a while. And finally, the, the, the passerby says, man, I don't think they're here. Are you sure you lost them here? And the guy says, oh, no, I lost them down the block. But the light's better here. <laughs> and and what what I suggest is that if we're really looking for wisdom, if we're desperate enough to to begin a serious search for wisdom, we don't just look where the light is best. We look at the obvious places, the place where it may actually be found um, when we've exhausted or when we've discovered the limits of what we can find in the light. I propose that we look at some non-weird wisdom when we find limits of our weird wisdom. So, where can we do that? Well, one of the problems we've discovered over the last, well, I don't know how long, but certainly the last couple of decades, is that faith in our institutions is declining. People have less and less trust in all of our institutions. The Gallup organization did this poll. This is 20 years' worth of data. And I don't know if it's obvious. Uh, some things haven't fared as badly as others, but basically trust has declined in, in 15 different um, Institutions, and there's like six or seven there on that on that chart. 
Um, so uh, organized religion, the medical establishment, um, uh, the presidency, organized labor, uh, TV news, and Congress. So um, TV news is eking out an edge over Congress. So good on them. So um, these are people who, this is the percent of the public who answered that they have a great deal of faith or a lot of faith in a particular institution. So if our institutions aren't an obvious place for us to turn, where should we turn? Where do we find wisdom? Well, I'm going to propose that we look at the Old Testament law. And particularly, I want to look at the book of Leviticus. I know some of you are thinking, finally. <laughs> so so why would I ever want to look at the book of Leviticus? Um, th- these are some, some actual uh, pictures from, from I, I consulted a number of Bibles this week and, and saw what they had to say about Leviticus. So one of them said, Leviticus is a difficult book. Another one said, many people find it hard to read. A third said, Leviticus is often neglected. And a fourth said, no book in the Old Testament presents a greater challenge to the modern reader than Leviticus. So why on earth would I want to spend any time in Leviticus? Well, partly because Paul told Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. So um, it may not be obvious how it's useful. But then again, I'm not trying to look under the streetlight. I'm trying to look where the keys may be found, right? The other thing is Paul talks about uh, preaching the, 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 the whole counsel of God. In, in Acts 20, Paul says that, that um, I did not hold back from you the whole counsel of God. So those are, those are two reasons for me as a pastor. I think that that's part of what I'm called to do. Um, and I think it's what Christians are called to do is to listen to to whatever wisdom God has provided to us, even in the difficult books that are hard to read. But the other thing is, people I respect admire Leviticus. Um, not least of them, Jesus. <laughs> in in uh, Luke's Luke's biography in the, uh, uh, of Jesus, he he recounts an incident where a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said said uh, What must I do? And Jesus said, You're the lawyer. You tell me. And the lawyer said, Well. Everybody knows you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That last little bit there, love your neighbor as yourself, that comes out of Leviticus. So um, Paul quotes it too in in um, Galatians. He says uh, that that's not just half of the greatest commandment, but that's the half that unlocks the whole. He says all the law has been fulfilled in a single statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul and Jesus both quoting um, Leviticus. And in fact, it's, uh, Leviticus is, is referenced 15 times in the New Testament. So there's, there's gold in them hills. So that's the, the thing I propose to do. But because it's called the Old Testament law... Um, I want to kind of uh, make sure we're clear on one thing before we begin, which is that we are not under the law. Christians are not under the law. Um, uh, people who follow Jesus are not under the law. And the reason for that is that Jesus replaced the law with a better covenant. Um, that sounds that sounds um, like, you know, who said it was better just because it's newer? Well, in this case, we know it's better because the writer of Hebrews says specifically that the new covenant is a better, uh, is a better thing than the Old Testament. So um, the the... Jesus replaced the law with a better covenant. And so if you're following in the outline, you can fill in that first one. Jesus replaced the law with a better covenant. And um, if if we are not under that, that old covenant, 
If, if we've been given the law of love, all we have to do is love our neighbors as ourselves. that by our love for one another, people know we're the disciples of Jesus. If, if so, why would we follow the, why would we even study the law? Forget trying to obey it. Why would we do that? And the reason, it, there's actually two reasons. The first reason is the Old Testament law is a mirror to see ourselves in. That, that by looking at the Old Testament law, we see ourselves. And the second reason is the Old Testament law helps us become Christ-like. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I first got married, I found out that my wife wanted the toilet seat left down. And my first reaction was, why would I want to do that? But the law was a mirror that helped me to learn that I was being selfish. And as a result, the law enabled me to become a better husband. So so if you think of the law functioning like that, uh, Margot was probably not going to divorce me. I don't think she was. If I if I I mean I still do sometimes. I, you know, don't don't ask her what the frequency is, but but it has probably happened from time to time since then. So uh, it's not a question of this is the end of our relationship, but it's a question of the law shows me what kind of husband I am and enables me to, to become a better husband. And in the same way, the Old Testament law, when we look at it, we see, we see what God's heart is all about, how God wants society to function. And more than that, we see what we have been made into in Christ. We see the kind of people that Christ has made us into so we can shake off the old self and actually live into the, the new people we are in Christ. So that's the reason we study the Old Testament law, not because we're, we're bound by it, Jesus has eliminated the law, this law, and given us a new one in its place. So, with all that intro, and I know that's a lot, but with all that introduction, I want to talk about Leviticus. And today I want to look particularly at the idea of gleaning. So gleaning. Not the twilight's last, that's gleaming. This is gleaning. So what is gleaning? Well, we see it described two ways in, or two times in the book of Leviticus. In um, chapter 19, it says, When you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field. And don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. And it continues, Also, do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. So that's the first place it's stated, and then a couple of chapters later in chapter 23, we read, When you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field, and don't gather every remaining bit of your harvest. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord, your God. So that's the basic statement in the book of Leviticus, and it's found in uh, some other passages in um Deuteronomy, it says, let, uh, it basically, it, it repeats it at some length, and, and um, I've got some scriptural background here if you want to kind of know where to start. Um, those of you online can screenshot or pause. Um, but, uh, but, uh, so, so in Deuteronomy, we see uh, another uh, telling of it. It says, let that food, the, the food you're not harvesting yourself, let it go to the immigrants, the orphans and widows. So the Lord God, your Lord, your God, may bless you in all that you do. That now there's actually a promise that's been attached to it. It's not just do it because I said so. Now it's do it so that the Lord will bless you. 
And there's another motivation. In Deuteronomy, it says, remember how you were a slave in Egypt, that I have already blessed you. So it's an invitation both to reflect on the way God has blessed you by, by freeing them from, from Egypt, but also to think about um, how God might bless them in the future. And that's why God is commanding you. So so that's in Deuteronomy 24. And in, and in Exodus, it talks about uh, the... the uh, it talks about gleaning in conjunction with the Sabbath year, the idea that every seventh year you let the fields lie fallow. And then, um, as it says, it says, um, leave it alone and undisturbed so the poor among your people may eat, and what they leave behind, the wild animals may eat. Basically, just don't even go into that field, let other people deal with the field during the Sabbath year. So those are two examples, uh, other examples of uh, uh, gleaning that we see in the um, in the Old Testament law. And then... Um, uh, I don't want to give the, the the idea that that's the only thing that was that was um, included in the Old Testament law about the poor. It's it's all through the Old Testament law. Many provisions for the poor. Um, and just to pick one as an example, in Deuteronomy 15, it says, "If there are some poor persons among you, say one of your fellow Israelites, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor fellow Israelites." Poor persons will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, and to the poor who live with you in your land. So it says this is a positive obligation. That just because, you know, it's not harvest time, you know, and there's nothing in the field to glean, that doesn't relieve you of the responsibility to take care of the people who are on the, the margins of society. So so there is positive um, uh, uh Obligations in the Old Testament law because God cares about the poor. So, a lot in the in the uh, Old Testament law about gleaning. But before we go any further, I think it, it's appropriate for us to ask: Is this just a, a historical footnote? Is this just a curiosity? Is this even a problem we have to address? After all, we've got a social. Uh, uh, Welfare net, uh, um, what is it called? Social safety net. We've got all kinds of programs that are designed to support the general welfare of society by by helping the needs of the the most marginalized people in our society. So, is this even an issue? Well, um, compared to in Old Testament times, it's not, uh, but it is still an issue. It's a, it's a small issue today. In in Old Testament times, probably eighty or ninety percent of the of the population was food insecure, maybe higher. That that you know, there's it's hard to get good estimates, um, but uh, the 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 economic ladder didn't go very high in in the, the Iron Age, and so a lot of people would have been poor. But even today, with all of our uh, programs and everything, we still have about ten percent of the people in our society, according to the USDA, who are food insecure. Now, food insecure doesn't mean they're starving, um, but that slice there of the orange pie, that's the number of people uh, who are insecure in their food. The other chart, and again, I appreciate these are too small, but that's based on different categories, how wealthy you are. And, and the one on the, the left, yes, the one on the left is the lowest number, uh, the people with the lowest income. And you can see the amount of money that they, that they use. The yellow is the amount of money. The green is the, uh, green is money. And yellow is how much of it they spend on food as a percentage. So you can see the poorer you are, the higher percentage of your money you spend on food. So um, it, it is a problem. There is food insecurity. But food insecurity doesn't mean people are starving. Um, it just means that it's harder for them than it is for other people. 
So, so there is still some need, but there's also a huge problem of food waste. The um, USDA also tracks waste, and it says food waste is estimated at between 30, what, 38 and 40 percent of the food supply. That very close to 40 percent of the food supply is is wasted. Uh, some of you may have seen um, there was a TikTok video, which I, I don't have a TikTok account, but I did see the video because it was pointed out to me, um, of a donut shop. Um, over the course of some period of time, I don't know, a day or maybe just a couple of hours, where they keep dumping the old donuts into the trash bin. And um, by the end, the trash bin is completely full. And, you know, that's a problem. That And, and maybe the donut shop is motivated to deal with it itself. In fact, um, somebody responded <laughs> with this. This is a picture from a from a donut shop, it says, we apologize, but due to supply chain issues, we do not have donuts today. So kind of a feast or famine thing going on at donut shops. And that's really for them to sort out. But it does raise the question, if we have a problem of food insecurity and we've got a problem of food waste, isn't there any way to address this problem? Is there anything that that would help us do this? And the answer, I, I would say, is some Old Testament wisdom. Um, and it has to do with the idea of must versus may. That in our society today, so many of the things we do are built around the idea you must do this. That um, you 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 pay your taxes to fund the programs that help other people. We have this idea of uh, compelling people to help out. That we don't want there to be free riders who are benefiting but not actually contributing. So we have a, a, a cultural norm that people people are required to, to participate in different things. And that's means-tested and so forth. But, I mean, ultimately, everybody's supposed to um, uh, pick up their share of the burden. So we have this idea of you must do this, and we've got, um, we've got different uh, mechanisms for making that happen. And there, there's a problem with that, which is that for it to become... For, for if, if you're going to have enforcement mechanisms and requirements, then the problem's got to be big enough that people notice it. You can't have a small problem that gets fixed without anybody noticing. You, you have to wait until it becomes uh, maybe not a crisis, but but a, but an area of some concern. And then you've got to have people who advocate and bring it to the attention of public policy people and so forth. So there's some lag in that system. So so our our systems are built around the idea of may of must for the most part. Um, but in the Old Testament, a lot of the, the thinking was about you may do something. What, what obstacles do we have to get rid of so that you can do, uh, so you can do good? And there's some, some real genius in the, the book of Leviticus as, as we see with this passage. It says, when you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field. Don't gather up, gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. The idea here is you can do good by quitting early. That if you punch out, you know, if you don't come back after lunch, that you could actually be doing good. You know, it's working with the grain. It's saying, it's saying that this is something that if I just eliminate some obstacles, then you would actually probably say, you know, I've got enough. You'd look at the bushel baskets or whatever, and you'd say, that's probably enough, so we can just kind of punch out early today. So, so it, it, uh, the idea is that it, it, um, it encourages you to do good by working with the grain. And, uh, the second passage isn't as obvious. Um, it says, when you sacrifice a communal sacrifice of well-being to the Lord, 
Um, so what is a communal sacrifice of well-being? There's all kinds of sacrifices. There's like chapters about sacrifices. And the communal sacrifice of well-being um, uh, is is the only one that the people got to share. So the idea is you went to the the, the temple and you offered a, a dove or you offered a, not a pig, you offered a, a dove or a goat or, or a, a cattle or something like that as, as an offering that all the other offerings you basically gave to the priests and they either burn up completely or it fed the priests. But the communal sacrifice of well-being, you got a portion back. You got the bulk of it back. The priest only kept a little bit. And there was a requirement you had to eat it that day and the next day. You couldn't keep anything till the third day. So it kind of required people to have a party. It, the, the communal sacrifice of well-being was designed for people to like it says, to be part of a communal sacrifice. So you would bring the 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 goat, or you'd bring the um, the the cow. And you know, it's not like us where we have refrigerators and we have Thanksgiving for the next week and a half. Uh, it's like we got to eat this thing in a hurry because you know we don't have refrigerators, and there's also a law that says eat it in two days. So so people would eat in a in a uh, festive mood. They're taking some time off. They're being with friends and they're eating together. So. Um, the the idea here is um, that that in both of these circumstances, the the communal sacrifice of well being, and then the other one talks about uh, the the feast of weeks, um, the the festival of first fruits. So as soon as the harvest starts coming in, and you can see, okay, we're not going to starve this summer, then you could have this festival. It's where we get our our Pentecost festival. Um, uh, so so during this occasion. Um, you have the opportunity to leave your field, um, foul, or the, the, the edges of your field available to other people. So the, the principle here is that, um, is that it, this works with the grain. It says knock off early, and it says the best time to ask people to contribute something is when their belly's full. That if they're feeling well off, if they're feeling like, okay, good, I'm going to make it, that's the best time to ask them and think about the other people. And we do this today. Um, I got this sweater for my birthday. And it finally provoked me to do something I've been meaning to do all summer. I went through my closets and I filled up two uh, bags of clothes that, that I, that, that, what is it, uh, that they don't bring me joy. They're perfectly good clothes, but I've got a closet full of clothes and they provoked me into actually cleaning out my closet a little bit. Um, um, we do, the, we do the thing with the, um, uh, Thanksgiving blessing, right? Uh, a lot of a lot of people say, you know, you're you're eating well this Thanksgiving. How about sharing that with other people? We do it at Christmas. We say uh, contribute toys for children, um, or uh, contribute uh, clothes, uh, you know, um, gloves and hats and so forth for the homeless shelter. There's lots of ways we do this. We say when you're when you are reflective of how you're you're you've been blessed, that's a great time for you to think I should do something for other people, and that's. The, the second item, uh, celebrate God's um, kindness by extending it to others. That that's a great time. When you are reflective that God has blessed you, that's a great time to extend that to others. And the, um, the, the second one is, the second, the second application is having margin in your life is good for you. What do I mean by that? Well, it does mean that that you've got room in your closet now, and so you can get new sweaters or whatever, right? So it's good for you in that sense. But it's good for you in other ways. It It is good, you know, man does not live by bread alone. 
We have a meaning crisis. We have depression and anxiety. We have all the problems that are, that are, you know, between our ears. We have all of those problems in our lives. And it's good for us to remember that I'm not just a consumer. I'm also a contributor. It's good for us to have margin so that we can be generous. Before my daughter went to college, we used to go down and work out um, on, on Saturdays at the mobile food pantry here, but also on Tuesdays at the mobile food, food pantry up on um, uh, Northern Lights. And uh, my daughter loved the position of the, the bread bin. She would, she would work behind the, the bread bin and hand out cakes and bread and so forth to people. And one of the things that, you know, be, I, I worked wherever she was, um, and one of the things that, that always struck me is they were, you know, this is a cast off bread from, from, uh, grocery stores and, uh, bakeries and things like that. And, and I would look at it and say, ooh, this is like some artisanal, you know, 17 grain nuts and berries thing. And I would, and they would go begging. Nobody wanted those things. The, the single most popular kind of bread at the mobile food pantry was, you got any sliced? If the bread was sliced, they wanted it. And that expanded my horizons because I thought, who doesn't have a knife? Who can't slice off some bread? And it made me realize I don't even understand the people who live down the block from me, the people who live over on Northern Lights I, or in that, in that neighborhood. I don't understand why they would pick what I think of as lesser bread. It just made me appreciate I don't know what is the right thing for different people. And so that was good for me to understand that, that I don't even understand what other people's needs are. Maybe they just need a knife. So having margin is good for you. Now, am I proposing any policies? I'm not. You, you know, you're, you're big people. You can figure out whatever policy prescriptions might be appropriate. Um, that's something you can figure out. I did see um, this article. This dumpster diver they profiled in um, uh, Creation Care um, Earth uh, type uh, uh, website, and um, they were talking about how generating all that waste costs energy and resources, and it would be good if it could be put to better use. But there are sometimes policy reasons why that doesn't happen. Sometimes. Um, Companies require their employees to destroy the items before they put them in the dumpster. Um, and uh, sometimes they do it for a tax loophole, that there's there's different ways the tax code treats different types of loss. So if it gets damaged and can't be sold, that's different from just being given away. So uh, there may be public policy proposals. I'm not I'm not really all that interested in that. But I wanna I wanna say one area that I think maybe is worth your consideration as you think about public policy proposals. One of the things in this passage, it says, leave those items, the, the, the margins of your field, the place where the, the, um, the poor will glean. Leave them for the poor and for the immigrant. Now, in the ancient Near East, there were other cultures that had things that are very similar to the biblical practice of gleaning. Um, but the one thing that stands out when you look at the practices of Israel is they had room for the immigrant. The immigrant. Famously, those of you who are more familiar with the story of Ruth, Ruth is 
um, a widow from Moab. She's from a different country, and she follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel. And she's allowed to glean there. She's allowed to glean there, even though she's from Moab, which was not a happy relationship. Between, you know, This will come as a shock to you, but the Middle East has sometimes had conflict between different countries. <laughs> and even though this, even though Ruth is from Moab, she is allowed to glean in the fields of Boaz. Because these items are not just for the poor, they're for the immigrant. And I don't know if this means that we should have open borders. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And again, you can think about that. But I'm always conscious in this church, we had a woman, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, who had a baby, and then had to go back to Nigeria to work out some immigration matters. She never returned because she died there. And I've thought if she had not had to go back to Nigeria to do those immigration matters, maybe she and her daughter would be with us today. So there may be a public policy issue there, that there's something that could be done to help the immigrant as well as the poor. But the other thing is this. Our society has become so tribal. Part of the reason for that that um, stress and mental health issues that we talked about is that people hate each other, and they feel good about hating each other. So what I want you to do is I want you to picture somebody that is not on your team, okay? And it could be somebody in politics. It could be somebody, you know, on the municipal assembly. You know, whatever, whatever. Picture somebody. Just close your eyes for a moment and think of that person, Okay. Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, John Oliver, whoever you really don't care for. Now picture you're driving along in your car and you're turning at the corner of Minnesota and and uh, Northern Lights and you look over there, there they are. They're standing there with a little card, you know, we'll work for food. What's your first reaction? See, I think our culture is pushing us to a place where our first reaction is good. Serves them right. When our first reaction should be, oh my God, it's somebody who's not in my tribe and they're hurting. So, maybe that's something else we can do with this. We can dial back the tribalism just a little bit. We can say, the good things are not just for people who think like me or who look like me, who come from the same country as me, or who are on my team. The good things of life have been given to me in part so that I can share them with people like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in need of wisdom in our world today. And so many of the things that we have done have blessed us. We are so well off. We have clean water and we have we have a supply chain that functions so well that we can have supply chain problems. But all is not well, Lord. Ten percent of our society is food insecure. There's tremendous waste. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us to think about those problems and to think about where wisdom can be found.
Lord, we pray that whether it's from the practice of gleaning or something else that you have um, given us during the course of our conversation today, Lord, that you would help us to to um, to see in your law who we are and who you have made us in Christ so that we can enact with the same kind of mercy and grace that he brought into the world. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.